0: Hello and welcome to the 144th episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 4th of January 2021 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. We begin this new year with the first of a three-part interview with Mike McNair where we get deep into the weeds, the reeds and the rushes on his revolutionary strategy. This week I have the new patrons Dogen, Electrician Apprentice Pierre Laplace, and Johan to thank. Part 3 of this interview will be released to Patrons late next week. So head on over to the patron if you'd like to support the show, where you'll get a lot of extra episodes and live streams. Okay, let's get down to business.
1: Oh yeah, what if you have to change course? Which you... The likelihood you have to change course in one way or another is pretty fucking high. My, my, my understanding of what the book is proposing is not that there's a solution that this is a sort of guaranteed to work situation, but that you're in a better position when crisis comes along. If you've been doing the preparatory work than if you haven't been doing the preparatory work in the sense that we've had over and over and over again, revolutionary crises in third world countries and some significant things close to revolutionary crises in uh, advanced countries. I don't think 1968 was an actual revolutionary crisis, but 1974 in Portugal was an actual revolutionary crisis. And the far left, because it's so fixated on trying to be the spark that lights the prairie fire hasn't done the preparatory work which would enable it to intervene effectively in that situation. But at the same time, once the damn thing breaks out, you're stuck with trying to deal with it with whatever forces you've got, however unsatisfactory that is.
0: However small and disorganized well, uh, those those forces are. Very, yeah. Why do you think the 68 wasn't and 74 was? Uh, essentially, is has the, the army stopped to bang orders?
1: is politics e- emerging in significant numbers in the ranks and uh, the middle cadre of the army
0: was there not in 68 like a fear by de gaulle that he wouldn't be able to call on the use of his soldiers within france and that's why he went to germany to get them from the rhineland and then they wouldn't let
1: him have it which is <laughs> why didn't why wouldn't they let him take soldiers from the rhineland back to france this is the nato high command because uh, they wanted to extract a price. There was a price. There was a price that, that, that in essence, the, how shall I put this? The, uh, the French had terribly embarrassed the United States over the coincidence of Suez and Hungary in 1956. The Brits and the French. The Brits got screwed over by being made to go into the European Union and give up empire preference. And the French got, weren't, quite as heavily screwed over as the British in 1956. But in 1968, de Gaulle was pursuing an independent foreign policy vis-à-vis Russia relative to the United States and vis-à-vis various third world countries. And 68, it was convenient for de Gaulle to have to make concessions. And conversely, it would have been terribly embarrassing in the middle of the Prague Spring and the propaganda campaign which was being run against the Soviet Union over the Prague Spring, for there to be large-scale repression in France by virtue of the French army being deployed on the streets. Mm. Yes, it probably is the case that at least parts of the French army were beginning to fray a bit, but not to the point that you actually got, it was that at the point at which the government could back off from its policy and not be faced with order number one and uh, soldier Soviets and all of that sort of stuff. The same with actually the Tahrir Square stuff in Egypt, Yeah, you know, that they backed off and dumped, I can't remember the guy's name, the old dictator, Mubarak. Mubarak, in time to stop the army beginning to refuse orders. And that meant that the army was still there to be the deployable against the Muslim Brotherhood when uh, it came time for Sisi to get rid of the Brotherhood. And in the same way with de Gaulle, okay, they made massive concessions. They made really big concessions. But those concessions made things safe. And among other things, the United States actually got the overriding of de Gaulle's veto on British entry to the EU and thereby paralysed the project of european unification because the brits could interpose the veto whenever anything inconsistent with u.s interests was proposed. no
0: longer mike no longer a free and independent
1: proud nation what the (laughs) implications of that are god knows i i my my guess actually now is biden having got in that the uh, americans will find ways to make life unpleasant for the british government unless the british government caves and entrance into a bring-out deal.
0: Well, the like the the big phone call that was supposed to be there at the week last weekend. You know, it was an obvious cave, and it's hard to know whether it was a cave or whether like the whole idea of a no deal Brexit. Even if there was going to be a Brexit, the PR would be there's going to be a no deal because Boris has to be seen as the white knight. So it's yeah. like, like it seems. It's hard to know. You think there's American pressure? You think there's American pressure pushing him to basically concede to European was panic at the moment when it became clear that the American
1: state was not going to back Trump resisting the electoral victory of Biden. Yeah. Suddenly there's panic in number ten and Dominic Cummings and his mate whose name I can't remember Kane got kicked out, bang, abruptly. And then the next Couple of days later, we get a big announcement about British increase in defence spending, which is trying to get back. One of the aspects of Britain's position in relation to the United States has been to be the attack dog, the guys who are most committed to heavy defence spending and can be deployed. Though the British army, unfortunately, the, well, unfortunately, from the British point of view, the British army had rather disgraced itself in Helmand province and in Basra. And doesn't look quite like the hard, sharp edge that it looked like between the 1950s and, well, no, between the end of conscription in the 1960s and the Blair administration.
0: You think they were too soft in, like, as in for the Americans, the British were too soft?
1: You know, the British Army has been selling itself as being really great at counterinsurgency work. And it was pretty successful at counterinsurgency work in Malaya and in Borneo in the confrontasi between Malaya and Indonesia in the early 60s and in the secret civil war in Yemen and the intervention in Oman. Uh, they lost in South Yemen, but that was the operations of Mad Mitch Mitchell screwed up their intelligence operations in the last year and they, had, they, they, they just couldn't hold it. And uh, in effect, in the six counties, that was a successful counterinsurgency operation. So, that, yeah, the Brits had a good record of success in counterinsurgency operations. And they, the, the British Army constantly preened itself on having a good record of success in counterinsurgency operations where the French and the Americans had done bad in Vietnam. You know? And then uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Turns out that the British Army ain't so good at counterinsurgency operations anymore, anyhow. For whatever reason, I'm not clear why, but...
0: It's good to hear. You know, like in Ireland, a lot of time goes around the pictures of the counterinsurgency in uh, Malaysia, where they have the beheaded villagers. And is it the... Was it the paras? I think it's... Is is it the paras? And the sergeant's holding the heads of the villagers that they've just chopped off. It's counterinsurgency, isn't it? Okay, let's hit a a real question here now instead of me bringing it off, leading you down the garden path. In chapter five on communist strategy and the party forum, you mentioned that we can block with the right wing of the workers movement on issues and take membership in parties and organisations they control. But you also say we need to organise independently of them. This Seems like it's something of a contradiction in in the overall strategy. It's only mentioned the entryism into their organisations. Only mentioned, I think, in that one sentence or two in the entire book. How do you relate the strategy of patience to this kind of entryism?
1: Okay, I have actually written about this in a series, about a three part series about the Trotskyist and entry in the British Labour Party. And the British Labour Party is to some extent a special case because it has this contradictory character that on the one hand, it claims to be a federation of all the workers' organisations so that it's got political parties affiliated to it. The Cooperative Party, Polar Zion, which calls itself the Jewish Labour Movement, is actually the British affiliate of the Israeli Labour Party and a number of other organizations, the Fabian Society, and so on and so forth, and it has historically had political parties affiliated to it, and so it pretends, by virtue of the trade union affiliations and having socialist societies affiliated to it, that it's a general front of the whole of the working class, and on the other hand, it pretends that it's a loyalist organization, it claims to be a loyalist organization, And it claims to be a loyalist organization an organization which is loyalist to the uk constitution primarily by bans and prescriptions of leftists which at the present time takes the form of the fake anti-semitism campaign of defamation which is in essence what it is around anti-semitism and the purging of individuals on that basis which is just a way of saying You have to be loyal to the British state and in particular to the British state's subordinate alliance with the United States of America. In the case of the Labour Party, therefore, my this is just my view, is that the left should be fighting for the right to affiliate without the bans and prescriptions. And that actually would be it, there's a sense in which that would be better done by a large party of the left, an organisation of the scale of the old Communist Party outside the Labour Party, than by people doing burrowing in Labour Party entry work. But having said that, suppose there is a mass movement taking place, as a mass support, mass mass movement of inside the Labour Party, as for example with the Corbyn movement. In essence, the the accident of Jeremy Corbyn being let onto the list by the so-called morons you know, had the consequence that there was a flood of two, three hundred thousand people into the Labour Party, hoping for something different, and to work with the 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 essence of part of the essence of of, of communist strategy is that you should actually work with the movement where it's happening. This is not, you know, this is not nothing particularly unusual that I'm saying here. This is standard stuff. You work with the movement where it's happening. It's just an unusual thing that the Morning Star's Communist Party of Britain guys um, didn't want to go in with. Were happy to have their relationship indirect through the Labour trade union bureaucracy via the Morning Star, and not and to try and persuade leftists to work outside the Labour Party in order to leave the bureaucracy in undisturbed control. On the other hand, the Socialist Party and the Socialist Workers' Party have the same bleeding position as the Morning Star, except with they give it a justification, which is that they say that the Labour Party has ceased to be a workers' party. Okay, so suppose it's not the Labour Party, but a regular Social Democratic Party like, well, not the Dutch PVDA, because it's the dutch pvda is a labor party the german spd was remade after the second world war as a labor party but like the, the the french socialist party or the french communist party these are mass workers parties suppose there's a movement there there's nothing wrong in principle with people taking up membership in order to be in the same places where people are actually trying to try to be in the same places where people are actually moving but what you have to do is not make that into an absolute that we have to be in come what may we have to be in the labor party slash the only way forward is a labor government the only alternative because if we say the only way for alternative is a labor government then we find that we're actually giving unlimited free credit to the right wing because they're in control so it's 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 a question of um, Participating just the same as you participate in strike struggles, in spite of the fact that the strike struggles aren't part of your immediate, your long-term objectives and not just to win through strike after strike after strike. Nonetheless, you have to participate in strike struggles. Similarly, you don't, I don't believe that we're going to win by building big, more and bigger. Arthur Boff argues that essentially the strategy of the workers movement has to be to build more and bigger cooperatives. And cooperative healthcare and cooperative and so on and so forth. Uh, I don't believe that's the case because I think the bourgeoisie will use its control of the state to expropriate. You build a successful cooperative and the bourgeoisie will either insist on regulatory reform in quotes, which will uh, give control back to the capitalists or scam you into kept taking a bridge too far as happened to the co-op bank in essence that Gordon Brown uh, used the co-op bank to bail out a couple of bankrupt building societies and bankrupted the co-op bank by doing so, which then leads to the co-op bank being handed over to a, a hedge fund. The, so I don't believe in that. But at the same time, nonetheless, one would participate in cooperatives alongside people who have that strategy. And one would participate in, where it's appropriate to do so, in uh, right-wing social democratic parties alongside so far as there are essentially people in there who are trying to make change to create uh, serious change uh, through the vehicle of this party, because they have a belief, probably mistaken, that this party can be turned into a vehicle for radical change, which I don't think it can.
0: Well, yeah, like it seems to me like that the tactic of it's a tactic of going into parties like the Labour Party to be where the struggle is at, is that the actual overall entry of the left into an organisation like the Labour Party is, you know, you're fighting an internal battle that you're structurally incredibly likely to lose in the yeah, medium I, term. My, my, and my preference from this you,
1: point of view is, uh, is not for wholesale Well, my preference as far as the Labour Party is concerned would be to win affiliation and to win the abolition of the bans and prescriptions. But, of course, in order to get that, we'd have to win the majority in the big trade unions. Yeah, So we'd have to win the majority in unite unison and so on and so forth and get them to vote down the bans and prescriptions. Of course, probably what would then happen would be something on a bigger scale like the anti-Corbyn witch hunt And they kicked out again. A party which can no longer pretend to be a general party of the working class. More generally, my preference is for fraction work, in that being that there are people who work in the same ways, You know, not everybody. You don't say every member of the party must be a member of X union. We do say everybody should be a member of their appropriate trade union, but we don't say everybody should be a member of of X trade union, in spite of the fact that it might be the case that a lot of big fight is going on in X trade union and not in Y trade union. So in, from that point of view, it's better in terms of the Labour Party to do to work from the outside with a fraction working in the party rather than to work wholly inside the party. Or the same true of any other big socialist party, etc., etc. That's the lines that I in the three-part series I wrote on... Oh, dear, I'm trying to remember the title. This is this was back in 2010 or 20, 2009 or something like that. That was essentially the line which I was arguing. You know, I have not myself joined the Labour Party in connection with the Corbyn surge, largely because it would have been completely bleeding pointless because I'd just been giving the bureaucracy 25 quid to, to go kick through you the out. process of expelling me. Because I've been writing under my I've been writing under my own name in the Weekly Worker for not using a pseudonym for years now. At a and B, uh, Andrew Smith, who used to be the MP for Oxford, personally expelled me, threw me out of the Labour Party in the 1970s. <laughs> there you
0: go. Um, so, like, we've seen, like, in the I'm mean, I i do not know the history of the like the 20s or stuff when the Communist Party was. Was it officially affiliated to the Labour Party back then? The British Socialist Party, which was the core of the Communist
1: Party, was officially affiliated to the Labour Party. Then when they formed the Communist Party, they formed the Communist Party together with people from the Socialist Labour Party, South Wales Socialist Society, and, oh dear, where else? Uh, some of the guys from the uh Workers' Socialist Federation, Sylvia Pankhurst's organization, though they, they didn't stay in long. There was a big fight about whether to be in the Labour Party or not to be in the Labour Party, which was then part of the Comintern stuff. Lenin's polemic in left wing communism and infantile disorder is partly against the guys who refused to fight for affiliation to the Labour Party. And then they applied for affiliation to the Labour Party, and the Labour Party said, Uh, Not terribly, surprisingly, fuck off. Uh, And they had people who were in the Labour Party by virtue of having already been in the Labour Party. So Vala was a Labour MP, communist Labour MP. Malone was a former Liberal MP who they won, rather more exactly, the Comintern won Cecil Malone from the Liberal Party as a result of his having gone on a fact-finding mission to Russia. So they had people who, the point being that they they had people who were in the Labour Party, and it took four or five years, perhaps a bit more, actually, for the Labour Party to systematically purge them out. And in fact, in spite of that, the uh, Communist Party ran people in the Labour Party in the 1930s as well. The Trotskyist, one of the things which was wrong with the Trotskyist entry project was that they imagined that by going into the Labour Party, they'd be going around the Communist Party and would escape from being under the shadow of the Communist Party. And of course, in reality, they went into the Labour Party and they found people who were either in the Communist Party or very strongly influenced by the Communist Party. And that went on being the case, which was a problem with the Trotskyist entry operations all the way through, that they were trying to dodge around the question of the Communist Party and they couldn't succeed in doing so.
0: So you had that, like, say, we'll call it an attempt that they got purged afterwards in, say, the 20s, with some remnants. We probably had another go in the 70s, 80s, you know, the militants and all that. The Trotskyists were in, but also the Communist Party as an outside organisation
1: had a massive influence through the trade union broad lefts in the AEU and so on on the labor party broad left so so they got they got purged though right no not at that level the uh, oh, the unions but at the... the eurocommunists took over the communist party when the eurocommunists took over the communist party they screwed over the labor left among other options they went for the blairites and uh, a significant number of the blairites were actually former eurocommunists like jack straw he wasn't actually a communist party member but he was in the periphery of the eurocommunists so the the labor left had as a spinal core the guys who were influenced fellow travellers of the cp and they also had people who were actually in the cp in it i'm not saying that this is I, i'm not saying this is categorically the way to go. It's a tactical option which is open, but it has to be a tactical option which is open on condition that you don't subordinate what you're doing to the political identity of being part of the Labour left, which is what happens to so many bloody people that they start out, we're going to go in and we're going to be Trotskyists in the Labour Party but actually the political identity becomes subordinated to the labour left that that's true of the psf french socialist party as well the Lombard organisation in france was running guys in the socialist party for years
0: so we have this kind of like structural problem like you to me like it seems like you could spend 20 years building up forces Adjacent or internal to the Labour Party, the unions, whatever, blah, blah, to try and get recognition. And you might win recognition for uh, the ability for a communist element or whatever faction to to be affiliated to it. And then they just come and they'd they'd screw you over some other way that they like that. That they're your class enemy. Like the party is essentially an enemy of revolutionary left. Of,
1: that's true of doing electoral work in general. The uh, the parliament is an instrument of the capitalist class. It's true of the work which, when you're serious organisation, you're going to have to do in the rank and file of the armed forces. That's considerably stronger. The uh, I was just that not that long ago reading about after the July days since 1917 Lenin was hidden by the chief of police in Helsinki. Because the chief of police in Helsinki was a leftist. Yeah. And they recruited, oh God, what's the man's name? Jesus. There was a general officer in the Russian army who jumped from the Russian army to the, to the Bolsheviks in October 1917. Yeah. <laughs> so the point, my point is simply that you're going to, if you're building a mass party, you're going to do work in really quite hostile a whole lot of very hostile environments back to the bolsheviks again the the russian social democrats um, went into the police trade union which was set up by father gapon who was a police agent running a fake trade union but however the police agent running a fake trade union it turned out to be it wouldn't it, it couldn't be held back the people that the guys in the rank and file started raising demands which then got uh, reflected in this police organized police sponsored organization Uh, that this sort of level of i'm not saying as i say i'm not saying it's strategic line to be in the labor party or to be in any other uh, socialist party or anything like that if anything i think it's decreasingly significant because look at where we are now, the right-wing in control of the Labour Party in Scotland have wiped it out. The Labour Party is now completely marginal in Scotland. My estimation for what it's worth is that the likely consequence of the right-wing taking back control from Corbyn is that that will happen to the Labour Party in England.
0: Well, this is the point, I think, it's like that from a kind of a historical point of view, Personally, I think it's inevitable that a a radical left element would initially try to use something like the Labour Party or the Democratic Party in America. I just think historically that's like where people think they have to go and to do it. And I think that the lesson of Corbyn and some of and what say in in Sanders is is a kind of like the futility of that of that strategy was like something they have to go through. To get towards so. else, like what comes up, like let's say Starmer and the right, essentially do what they did in in Scotland, okay, but in Scotland you had the you had the Scottish National Party to put the dagger in in Labour essentially, and I the point then is what's your what's your dagger in England? A new Brexit
1: party that the, the uh, Labour Party under Starmer nails its colours gr- to a greater or lesser extent to the mast of the European Union and to the mast of the alliance with the United States and to liberal internationalism. And UKIP, you know, the the Brexit turned by Cameron resulted from the fact that UKIP was... Pushing race. Right. Pushing the Labour, Tory party into third place and uh, challenging Labour seriously in the north and the coastal towns and so on and so forth, and pushing right. And uh, it seems to me that uh, certainly if Boris uh, is seen to do something which looks like a capitulation, I would expect uh, that uh, you'd get uh, more of an English nationalist, a more strongly English nationalist party emerging as an alternative to Labour in the so-called former Red Wall. That's a very negative view of what's happening. But the problem in essence is it, it's, is it the being in the Labour Party, which stops these guys? Actually, no, it's they're internalizing the norms of the Labour Party. So that instead of actually mobilizing forces on the ground and enabling people to engage in their own creativity in the localities and to go out and build and do their own work, everything is top down
0: control. But they even expend like they, they expend their energy in fighting internal, like that's well, the didn't. kind of key point. They
1: did not bloody fight internally,
0: yeah. but
1: it's possible
0: to carry on the fight internally in the Labour
1: Party, and nonetheless do so in a way which mobilises forces on the ground, because you're actually turning people out to vote in the general committee meetings and mobilising people to fight against the right. But in order to do that, you have to be willing to fight against the right and the leadership of the Corbyn movement, him, Corbyn himself, but also the guys around straight left. What's his name? It's Andrew Murray and Milne, and so on. were prepared to fight against the right. They wanted to win in government. They wanted to win the next election. And form a government in coalition with uh, the right. And therefore they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared to stand up against the witch hunt. They weren't prepared to make big changes, to fight for big changes on, to fight for open selection, re- mandatory mandatory reselection. They weren't prepared to stick with their own. Political positions. It was entirely a matter of how do we hold this coalition together on the basis that if we hold this coalition together, we can get a government
0: which is a bit more left wing. Is that pressure not always there when you're, when you're entering into one you're of these? side are outside the party as well. Look at yeah, the but-
1: socialist workers party and the political character of uh, respect or the political character of uh, the trade union socialist coalition. Or its predecessor, no to EU, no to EU, yes to democracy. The political pressure, if you take the if, if you make the political line that what we're in the business of is building a serious opposition of building the forces of the workers' movement on the ground. It doesn't bloody matter whether you're doing that inside the party, if you can be inside the Labour Party or outside the Labour Party, because you're doing something different. You're going for a different conception of building up self-organization self-activity creativity and yes it quite likely you'll get kicked out it doesn't matter whether you get kicked out or not it's immaterial because if you get kicked out in those circumstances you get kicked out in a way which people can bloody understand what we've had instead is a steady erosion of good militants getting kicked out and the bleeding leadership of the left won't defend them. There's no solidarity. Yes, that guarantees that you get nowhere, but that's equally true if you have this
0: from the outside. But I'd say, like, if imagine if the left, what happened if the left left leaders, you're saying, backed up these people who are getting kicked out and trumped up anti-Semitism charges and stuff like that. What would happen to them like, right. I, I, I put forward a case that they would end up getting kicked out it's, it's, for anti-semitism.
1: It's not a question of uh, that it's uh, we have to guarantee that we're in the Labour Party. It's a question of how do you intersect this movement of two, three hundred thousand people which went into the Labour Party hoping for radical change? Yeah, And it doesn't matter if this winds up being a movement to create a new party outside the Labour Party or whether it winds up being uh, a a huge battle inside the Labour Party. But if you don't fight, because what you're concerned about is to create a Labour government, and in order to create a Labour government, you have to have the alliance with the right. And in order to have the alliance with the right, uh, you have to keep your head down then uh, it doesn't matter whether you're inside or outside the Labour Party, that policy still leads back to right-wing Labourism.
0: Yeah, I just think that like the, I I think like the move into entryism, like from what I can observe from people who were involved in it, you know, young people starting off into politics types is that they can't believe and they just get what happened and they get 100% disillusioned and then you have a generation lost. That's
1: certainly and, true,
0: and but I think that like there was there was nothing which we could do
1: about that. Oh, true, was true. But which, the lessons- there were things which the Socialist Workers Party could have done about that. There was things which the Socialist Party could have done about that. There was things which the Morning Star could have done about that. But in order to do that, they'd have to overcome their own sect differentiations around the nature of the Soviet Union and the immediate turf interests of their little local bureaucracies and unify themselves. Um, <laughs> because as it was, they were all trying to cling on to the coattails of the Corbin movement, the Corbyn leadership, and the Corbyn leadership was clinging to the coattails of the Labour right wing. So that you're it's it isn't the question of organizational Outside in or out, organisational issue, which is
0: determinative here. It's the question of what politics. Well, I think I think it's not simply what politics. Like, let me make a case here for you. Like, it's not one hundred percent analogous. Like, I'm not making the case that it shouldn't have happened. What I'm making, trying to make the overall case, is like it's happened. Look, we've learned how we've seen repeated lessons about what happens when you go in. That radicals should be seeking to have structures of their own. Where they can determine them, you know, the interactions where you're where you're not fighting internally to the same extent as you are forced to do so under all sorts of of but structural problem, problems. But the problem with this is that the uh, if you're not fighting internally, you're not learning. I, I mean, like you could fight internally in your own own have your own fights, but not just a fight against basically a board wall, right? Stop you, you know. It, it,
1: it's merely the bat you're internalizing the policy of bans and prescriptions because it's the policy of bans and prescriptions which says we don't allow leftists to organize on on communist principles but in point of fact actually there's nothing to stop you organizing on communist principles yourself and risking uh, more or less with a degree of clandestinity but risking getting uh, thrown out if you get thrown out you get thrown out you can still organise on communist principles but the, what these guys have done is to organise on labour leftist principles inside or outside the labour party in ways which then uh i agree is terribly demoral it's unbelievably demoralising that you do that but it's just as demoralising everybody who turned out on the big stop the war demonstrations gradually declining and gradually declining Hey, there's loads of people who were utterly demoralized by that because we turned, we marched, we marched, we marched. It didn't stop the war. Well, like, surprise, surprise. You can't stop the war by marching. You can only actually stop the state going to the war, to war by overthrowing it. Or, you know, make the military unable to send the military. <laughs> or make the military <laughs> unable to act, which is essentially, yes, what the anti-Vietnam war movement targeted. Because mm. the U.S. military was dependent on conscription. Because of that, of course, the US, the NATO uh, adopted a principle against conscription in order to secure that armies should be secure against that sort of subversion.
0: Okay, uh, let me just kind of counterpose something to you versus the Labour Party. Now, the analogies aren't going to be perfect or anything like so. Go easy on me. (laughs) But like, say in, in, say, when the troubles kicked off again in Northern Ireland, in the late sixties, early seventies, like historically in Ireland, you the two major parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil would have been seen as the more Republican of the two. It went against the treaty in, in 21 yeah. and they fought a the civil war. Now, like growing up, like in the South where I did, and Sinn Féin wasn't a thing really at all. It was so unbelievably marginal. And there was old IRA men, very, very conducive to uh, helping out the IRA in the north and the provost. That's just a reality. Like Sinn Fein could have pursued a strategy of entryism into Fianna Fáil. Like that could really have been a, a, a strategy. Well, that was a, uh,
1: certainly an element. Charlie Hockey, uh, as T-shirt, was uh, definitely played footsie with uh, the provost.
0: Well, they gun-runned. They got. They got the army. They literally apparently delivered 300 grand worth of arms or 100 grand worth back in the day, which was a lot to the provost yeah. through the Irish army. And it was the army sergeant, the army general, I think, or whatever, who got thrown under the bus. How uh, he got kicked out of Fianna Fáil, or I think he got, he got kicked. He, he, he got he lost his I think he got lost his membership uh, of the cabinet anyway, but he ended up riding it. Back onto the tails for the party leadership, but the point is that like Sinn Fein could have actually entered into the into the Republican Party, or sorry, into the Fianna Fail Party as a you know a tactic like en- the you know radical left entering the Labour Party, but they built up from small from a small party like Sinn Fein was was a tiny element. You know, it was essentially. Yeah. You know, in essence, I, what you've got is the, there's a split. There's between Sinn Fein, the workers party,
1: which went towards becoming an official communist organization and the provosts who were more pure nationalist, green as anything and nothing but green. And in essence, when the civil rights movement kicked off in the North and the b specials and the, loyalists started attacking the nationalist areas in the north the only guys who had any weapons to defend them with was the provost and so in this situation because the provosts were precisely because they were an armed group yeah they leap to the head of this uh uh this mass movement they become the leaders of this mass movement in the north and from the mass movement in the north they're able to develop into what I guess is now the equivalent of Fianna Fáil when it was more nationalist, that, that, that they're an opposition party of a
0: constitutional nationalist character. but Reasonably, uh, reasonably constitutional, let's not get too carried away. But, uh, well,
1: you can see that in the sense of that they were not particularly radical over the uh, consequences of the financial crisis. They were not posing the question of power over the consequences of the financial crisis, and they were looking. They've been looking to get into coalition government, without as yet success. But for a while, they've been pushing for, "We want to be in coalition." Okay, so the, I don't know. Like that's that's I, exaggerating, Mike. I is, that is 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 it is certainly the case that you don't want to be a party which is understood to be part of the current political game and that's part of why it's wrong to enter into coalition governments even if it looks as though by entering into coalition government you're keeping these guys out the same with iran it turned out to be the case that it was um, uh, the the regime fell and its hormani and his movement takes the benefit of it. Why does Khomeini and his movement take the benefit of it? The answer is because Khomeini and his movement have never played footsie with the Shah's regime, whereas today the uh, official Communist Party have played footsie with the Shah's regime. Okay, but then do we want, to, well, similarly, actually, the Somoza regime falls in Nicaragua. That's not because of a military defeat of the Somoza army by the Frente Sandinista, it's because The Frente Sandinista Sandinista is a trivial little guerrilla group up in the hills and the Somoza regime falls apart out of its own internal contradictions. And the Sandinistas are the guys who are outside of that political game. So, yeah. But then the question is, what can we do? Because it's clearly the case that we can't. It would be senseless for us to try and do
0: guerrilla operations in mainland England. Like, the the point is not so much, though, but like the IRA, like, and Sinn Fein being. How do you
1: signal very clearly we are the enemies of this state regime? Now, again, I don't think that, I mean, to be honest, I think that the likely, the strong likelihood is that you will always get purged out of the Labour Party if you signal clearly we are the enemies of this constitutional regime. But it's a question of having the clarity of the understand, having the understanding of the masses that that's what's going on. That it's not that this is that this is you are being purged out of the Labour Party because you're the enemies of this constitutional order. Whereas actually Corbyn and Co. And it was also true of Tony Benn. Yeah, these people are friends of this constitutional order. They are loyalists to this constitutional order. A hundred percent. And it's their loyalism to this constitutional order which actually facilitates
0: the right wing purging them. But, like, say, with with, the, with the, getting back to Sinn Féin, say, for example, like, it's not the case that in the North, even, at the height of the Troubles, where, like, the Provos were armed and, you know, we're saying they had a mass movement behind them. I think that's, that is true. But at the height of the armed IRA in the early 80s, like Sinn Fein up north was ten percent. That's all it was. They they yeah, were even they, they were under, they weren't they weren't even it, the dominant it's, uh, Catholic. It's, it's the it's the ballot
1: box and the armor light turn. They start taking elections seriously, and what kicks it off is uh, Bobby Sands hunger strike and the Republican hunger strike in uh, what's the damn place called? Your hate blocks, oh, and that. Kicks off that uh, it's the two things together. On the one hand, that the Sinn Fein had stood in elections, but it was never a big deal issue. Yeah, the uh, Provo leadership in the eighties turned to this ballot box and armour light line rather than trying to keep the uh, out of the sands, the hunger strikers, and so on. Which wasn't something which they kicked off. It was something which the guys in jail kicked off, and then the leadership. Picked up on McGuinness, I think, as much as, um, Adams. Adams. Well, Adams was the political front man. McGuinness was the guy who was clearly in the military leadership as well as the political leadership. But that, in a sense, yes, they had a, they had a mass movement of sympathy in the armed struggle, but then it became something more arising out of the, H-block struggle and arising out of the turn to electoral work. It's very difficult to predict what will kick something like this off. <laughs>
0: On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister podcasts General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats.